This morning, our scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading brief portions from two chapters at which Jesus is at two different dinner parties with the Pharisees. So first from chapter 11 and then chapter 14. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him, so he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give for alms those things that are within, and see everything will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And from chapter 14, When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in high school, my favorite album, which back in my day meant a compact disc, was U2's The Joshua Tree. It was given to me by my first boyfriend, and that might have had something to do with why I loved it so much, but it was more than that. The music, guitar, drums, and a synthesizer made to sound improbably like a pipe organ could fill up my bedroom or my car with what felt like a wall of sound. The lyrics reflected my adolescent desire for independence with a dose of righteous anger thrown in for good measure. A few years ago, U2 was traveling around on a tour of the Joshua Tree album, celebrating the 30th anniversary of its release. Derek and I went when they came to Cleveland, and when that music started, I was instantly transported to my 17-year-old self. The emotions were overwhelming. My eyes filled with tears, but I wasn't sad, not exactly, and I wasn't happy either, but something else. That something else I was feeling was first given a name in the 1680s by a Swiss doctor named Johannes Hoffer. Hoffer was studying a group of soldiers who were stationed abroad and suffering from a mysterious malady that caused fainting, hallucinations, and debilitating fatigue. 
It often hit people in autumn, and it caused them to long for home, for their families, for familiar foods, scenery, and routines. Hoffer was so intrigued by this strange affliction that he wrote his dissertation on it and in the process gave it a name derived from the Greek words for homecoming and ache, nostalgia. Fast forward to 2021 and Grafton Tanner, a communication studies professor at the University of Georgia who has written two books about nostalgia. He calls nostalgia the defining emotion of our time. He explains it as a longing for a home in the past. That longing might be distorted or cobbled together, and it is often imperfect because our memories are imperfect. But nostalgia reliably offers us something, an escape from the uncertainty of the future towards the permanence of the past at least the past as we remember it. Tanner credits nostalgia with our obsession with rerunning the sitcoms of the 80s and 90s and remaking old movies. And he argues that this obsession is particular to our time. Today's scriptures suggest otherwise. Because if we dig into Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees, this group of Jewish religious leaders, we discover that what he's criticizing is their nostalgia for a way of exercising and maintaining the institution that gives them their authority. Now, we have a tendency to simplify Jesus' relationship to the Pharisees as adversarial, Understandably, since in many of the gospel narratives, when the Pharisees appear, they are being criticized by Jesus. And Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees usually result in them looking for a way to trap him into saying or doing something they can use to discredit him or get rid of him altogether. But the preacher and biblical scholar Fred Craddock points out that Jesus and the Pharisees actually had a lot in common. They would have worshipped together every Sabbath at the synagogue. In Luke's gospel especially, Jesus is often a dinner guest at the home of some Pharisee or other, and it is the Pharisees who warn Jesus that Herod is trying to kill him. So as contentious as their relationship appears to be, they are not exactly enemies. But Jesus has strong concerns about the Pharisees' religious practices. As Craddock puts it, Jesus is not an outsider firing broadside at institutionalized religion. Rather, he is sharply critical of religion that has become self-perpetuating, that has hardened principles given for life into regulations that suffocate and condemn that has quantified piety and lost its heart, that has, in some, lost its capacity for self-criticism. Jesus is fully committed to the Jewish faith of his family and his community, a faith in whose scriptures he is steeped and from whose stories he draws meaning. But he also recognizes the danger of a religion that has become 
nostalgic, more focused on the past than the future. So Jesus wants to expand the Pharisees' understanding of God and God's love for the world and every person in it. And his directives to the Pharisees are clear. To move into the future, they need to let go of the strictures and structures of the institution that are relics of the past. Especially among the Pharisees who love God and the Jewish faith as deeply as he does, Jesus focuses his critique on the hypocrisy of the institution and its leaders. Consider the questions he raises for them in the passages we heard today. What good does it do the Pharisees to require hand washing before a meal when their actions, especially toward the least of these, reveal that it is their insides, not their outsides, that are unclean? What is the point of cleaning their hands when clearly they regard other people as beneath them, no matter how much those others might try to clean up their act, literally or figuratively? And why are they so obsessed with image, wanting to be honored with the best seats at the table, when God's prophets have always admonished God's people to care for those oppressed by a culture that confers honor and demands that we constantly keep score? How much easier would it have been for Jesus to simply write off the Pharisees as hopelessly hypocritical and not worth his time, to cut his ties to tradition and the past and start over with a clean slate. Instead, he chooses to stand firmly within that tradition and invite its most dedicated leaders to reject nostalgia's siren call to the past and move toward a future ever more defined by the ways of God. The Reverend Amy Butler grew up in Hawaii. In an interview, she was asked how her childhood shaped her as a church leader. She responded that growing up on an island with a dad who was a community organizer taught her a lot about how to build and lead a community. Think about it, she said. When you live on an island, you have to learn to get along or you're all going to die. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus attempts to create a community where all kinds of people can come together to experience and share God's love and to live as God commands. But like life on an island, it wasn't easy to bring together and hold together people of different experiences and backgrounds, from religious leaders used to wielding power and authority to the powerless and outcasts whom Jesus calls as his disciples. The church exists to continue this experiment in unlikely community. And our church's future, like every church's future, is directly related to our capacity and willingness to come together and be honest about the past that has shaped us and the uncertain future toward which God calls us and to hold one another accountable to the hard work of discipleship. Notice that Jesus stayed with the Pharisees even as he invited them to look at how their outsides did not always match up with their insides, 
how what they said did not always match what they did. Jesus extended this invitation to self-reflection while he sat with them at their dinner tables. And what's astonishing and telling is that the Pharisees kept inviting him back, which suggests there was something about his words they needed, even wanted, to hear. Some truth they longed to digest with the rest of the dishes at the party. It's the same for us. As hard and uncomfortable as it makes us, part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus calls us on our stuff, holds us accountable. How we focus on rules and regulations, what we like to call decency and order, sometimes at the expense of real human need. How we prioritize the comfort of the few over the suffering of the many. How our words don't always match our actions. How we get caught up in jockeying for position and prestige rather than working together to lift up the downtrodden. Jesus, with his words and his actions, holds us accountable. And what he does for us is, in many ways, the opposite of nostalgia, that warm and fuzzy longing for the past, because Jesus meets our longing for comfort and then makes us uncomfortable. He calls us to be who we say we are, and he doesn't sugarcoat how hard that is to do. And as difficult as that message is to hear, there is something about it that keeps drawing us back, just like the Pharisees kept inviting Jesus back to their dinner parties, even though once there he does all the things a guest is not supposed to do. Will Campbell was a Baptist minister, a civil rights pioneer, and the author of the book Brother to a Dragonfly. In that book, he recounts a time in the late 1960s when he was speaking at a conference of young, new-left radicals of that time. Before he spoke, the conference viewed a documentary called The Ku Klux Klan, An Invisible Empire. The film took the viewer inside a Georgia Klan Clavern Hall where an initiation ceremony was in progress. At one point, the candidates to be initiated were lined up in military formation and the command, left face, was shouted. One scared and pathetic figure turned right instead, bringing confusion to the formation. Seeing this, the conference audience watching this film erupted with jeers, catcalls, and raucous laughter. Campbell recalls, I felt a sickening in my stomach. Those viewing the film were alleged to be on the cutting edge of social change, black and white, women and men who'd been taking over campuses in recent months. They used words like establishment as if it were poison. Who were they beyond that? Most of them were from middle and upper class families. They were students or recent graduates of rich and leading universities and colleges. They were mean and tough, but somehow I sensed there wasn't a radical in the bunch. For if they were radical, how could they laugh at a poor, ignorant farmer who didn't know his left hand from his right? 
If they had been radical, they would have been weeping, asking what had produced him. After the film, it came time for Campbell's speech, and then he was to lead a discussion. So he stood up and he said, my name is Will Campbell. I'm a Baptist minister. I'm a native of Mississippi. And I'm pro-Klansman because I'm pro-human being. Now that's my speech. If anyone has any questions, I'll be glad to try and answer them. Well, the last sentence wasn't out of his mouth before pandemonium broke out in the hall. Everyone was shouting at Campbell and storming out. He noted that it was one of the few times he felt fearful of bodily harm. Finally, just a few people remained. Campbell writes, it took time to get my little band of radicals settled down enough to point out to them that just four words uttered, pro-Klansman, Mississippi Baptist preacher, coupled with one visual image, white, had turned them into everything they thought the KKK to be, hostile, frustrated, angry, violent, and irrational. And I was never able to explain to them that pro-Klan's man is not the same as pro-Klan, that the former has to do with a person while the other with an ideology. We are all tired. We are all longing for stability and certainty. We are all grasping for control over anything. But these challenges that face us right now, they are not new. God's people have always had to wrestle with how to turn away from our nostalgia for the past and our hypocrisy in the present and get to work building the future Jesus reveals to us. It can feel impossible, but if Jesus had hope for the Pharisees, I know he has hope for us too, which is why he shows up with us and for us, which is why he holds us accountable and invites us to engage the hard work of discipleship, which starts with seeing ourselves in our proper place. With, not above, anyone else. We're all tempted by nostalgia and prone to hypocrisy, and we see this much more clearly in others than in ourselves. Fortunately, Jesus keeps coming back to our dinner parties, to our worship services, and with love and mercy reminds us the past wasn't always as perfect as we remember it. And we are invited to join him in building a community within and beyond these walls of hope and peace, justice, and great joy. Amen.